Alrighty, alrighty. Welcome back, everyone. This is episode number 25 of Rob's Garage Podcast. RGP, on this very nice, beautiful Veterans Day. And guess what? We have a bit of a concept show happening today because I am literally the only one here. And this is going to be very, <laughs> very bizarre and very interesting. And I'm going to do my best. I, you know, I even let that intro song play a little longer than normally because I'm going to really stretch this out. But as I said, it's Veterans Day. We want to uh, pay tribute to all the vets and thank you for your service, as well as the people that didn't serve because, you know, war sucks. So good job there, too. Um, so, yeah, number 25. Number 25. And the reason why we're, we're kind of solo here is it's, it is a Monday. Um, as we learned last episode, I am a rather um, servant leader for the company that I that I kind of run, and um, so we we give an optional day off to to honor and celebrate Veterans Day. And so, um, it sounds like the echo is bad in here. You know, we got new chairs in the studio, so if the echo is is uh, is more pronounced than normally, I do apologize. I hope it's not as bad as it sounds in my my earphone, but this is what you're gonna get. Um, so in any event, so it's, uh, it's a Monday afternoon. I am solo. The office is closed. Rob, if you follow us on uh, Instagram at the Rob's Garage podcast handle, you'll see that he's absolutely <laughs> defacing the city of Seattle. Rainbow Rob is in Seattle. Could you imagine? There's going to be none left by the time he leaves. Just nothing's left. And uh, a bunch of bumper stickers throughout the city of Seattle. So, we want to uh, congratulate Rob and, and tell him to keep up the good work, spreading the good gospel of the RGP podcast. And like I said, this is number 25. This is the quarter century mark. You know, they say uh, about three years of content will finally get you uh, some listeners. Um, so, you know, here we are. We're almost at a year mark. We're at 25 and we have a nice little round of listeners um, according to our stat book, if you will. Maybe we should uh, come up with a name for our listeners. How about friends and family? <laughs> so we want to thank our friends and family for listening, but once we amass a real crowd, a real following, we'll, we'll give you a name. But right now, thank you to the friends and family that listen to the show. So here we are. Here we are, episode 25. I figured, you know, true to form, you know, with our lack of uh, show planning, and, and maybe one day, as we mentioned in the past, we'll, we'll, we'll be a legitimate podcast and have a producer and intern Dan will get his head out of his ass and contribute a little bit. But up until that point, it's been kind of fun just to wing it and, and really see where uh, the show goes. And I, I think, uh, you know, some of the feedback that we have gotten from uh, the community, you know, the, the friends and family, if you will, um, you know, really comment on, on sort of our rich history of, uh, you know, friendship and, and uh, chemistry. So where one may stumble, another can pick up and uh, embellish on a story or add to the story. So I figured, you know, maybe what we can do here is now that, I, you know, I, I have no supporting crowd here, I'm just on my own island. Maybe we just talk about, you know, how, how I personally got to know everyone. I know we touched on it a little bit and we kind of talked about um, our past, our paths crossing and, you know, as kids where we, we originally met each other or why we met each other. But, you know, maybe we can narrate it a little bit just to kind of give a little bit of insight, at least from my perspective, on when I met each of these clowns. And I say that, you know, is the most endearing term um, because we are, we are lovable clowns and, and uh, you know, our friendship has withstood 20 years, 20 plus, almost 30 years, my goodness, for, for some of us. Um, so it's a unique thing and, and, and we greatly appreciate it. And, you know, if it provides some downtime and funny fodder for you to listen to the show and about our our stories. And, and we haven't even scratched the surface because, you know, we're all professionals to a degree and we have a reputation and, you know, we don't want to incriminate ourselves too much, but, you know, we'll get to the point where, you know, some stories really come out that um, will be good for the movie. You know, I, I've talked about it for a little bit. You know, we have a very rough outline of what a, what a treatment is going to be for the RGP 
uh, movie because there's there's quite enough um, content and and life experience that uh, that we've you know experienced together that we can certainly frame out a movie. I mean, two hour movie, I don't know. Uh, it'd be like the the Blair Witch, just Rob's Garage version. Just Chris in the corner staring at the wall. That's how we're gonna start the movie. <laughs> just you know, okay, actually, that's probably not that you know different from what he would normally do at the garage, but we'll let him explain that. So I guess we can just go around the room. Uh, as I mentioned, well, let, 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 hold on, let's, uh, let's back up a little bit. So Rob is in Seattle defacing, or I should say evangelizing the show on the West Coast. Uh, I believe Sean spent the weekend in New York and he's probably at his 50, 500th uh, Shakespeare play, maybe. I was going to say 50, but that seems a little light. Dollar bill is officially vanished. Check your milk cartons because I'm I'm really worried. I, I you know he comes in, he drops these one line bombs. He just crushes every time, but you can't find him. You know the the fan mail that we get, the emails, the Twitter mentions, all the DMs on Instagram. They're all asking where Dollar Bill is. I don't know. I have no no idea. Has he got a family? Huh? No excuse. Toddler at home? Come on. Anyway, we, we, we miss you, Dollar Bill. Um, hopefully, you'll be back on the, sh- on the show in some time. Um, so, so, Dollar Bill's MIA. Sean's in New York, you know, playing Shakespeare. Rob, again, is in Seattle. And Christian, he doesn't leave the house. What, what can I say? I don't, I, don't, I don't know what to do. It's a Monday. He only leaves. He's got a small window. He's got like a work release program. Truth be told, he's on house arrest. <laughs> he's got a bracelet or an anklet. He can't, he can't leave his house. But he does venture out. He breaks the law. He, he crosses the bridge to Philadelphia here. And he, he puts together a, a great show every time. But, you know, this is it. You know, we're going to make, make do with what we have. So, so, yeah, so I guess we can get started. I'm going to start with Rob. First time I met Rob, because subconsciously, I think what happened, you know, last episode or a few episodes ago, I don't, I don't know, when he was talking about uh, this cartoon, uh, Fritz the Cat, this pornographic <laughs> 60s, 70s cartoon, it all made sense because at, at the time when he was telling us the story, it was just something new to me. I had never seen it. But then it dawned on me literally just days ago that that was really the first time I met him. Now, let me explain why. It, it wasn't because I walked into his garage and he was watching cartoon porn. That wasn't it at all. But it was the summer of, uh, let's see, 91 or 92. But I, not the best student in the world, apparently Rob, no one else in this. Actually, no, Sean and, Sean and Bill, I, I think we're really good students, but... Um, you know, my crippling ADD and anxiety sometimes pulled me away and distracted me from, uh, from some of the school lessons in our wonderful, wonderful Blue Ribbon uh, school district. And I, and I say that in, in full sarcasm. I don't even think they gave out ribbons, not even like 4-H ribbons at our high school. In any event, I found myself in summer school one summer. And, you know, this was a public school in a middle class, I would say lower to middle class township in New Jersey that, you know, we're talking if your parents were a police officer or a teacher, you were upper class. I mean, so that, that I mean, at least that was my experience. I, I could be wrong, but I don't remember anyone's parents being a lawyer or a doctor or some other professional. It was, oh, you know, your dad's a police officer, your mom's a teacher, Whew, rich kid, rich kid. So with that, you can imagine, you know, what our school budgets look like. And not to mention half of the district was senior citizens. So outside of Florida, Manchester, New Jersey has one of the highest, or Toms River, New Jersey, so Ocean County, we'll we'll say that. Ocean County has the highest density of senior citizens in a location uh, outside of the state of Florida. So you can imagine our school budgets... Um, going through the board and, and going to the, the local voting polls, 
were always denied for increases because, you know, listen, I mean, you, you had transplants from all over the country, up north, you know, they were retired, moving into these villages. So, of course, they weren't going to pass a bill to increase property tax to provide funding for our school system. Of course not. Our athletic fields, potholes everywhere. How many ankles did we break just kind of running, running track? It was horrible. So, as you can imagine, I think, you know, the overall talent pool of teachers that had come through our school district were, you know, young, impressionable go-getters that really just wanted to land their first job out of college. And so I think, you know, it was an, it was an interesting mix of like fresh blood teachers that were going to change the world and kind of go into this school district where, um, there was no budget for anything, and but they could make make a make an impression and and really make a change. And then you had just these sort of seasoned, tenured, you know, mailing it home type of teachers that just let it ride because they were there when the first school opened up in the early seventies. Now, mind you, we're here in the you know late eighties, early nineties, so it's not like this was a fifty year rich history of uh, a school district, but, you know, those were the two types of teachers that I I can remember. And so as, you know, I'm trying to think of that movie with Coolio and Michelle Pfeiffer, um, not criminal minded, but anyway, (laughs) I I feel like if there was no gang behavior and there was no like super violence outside of your, your teenage hijinks and, you know, who's kissing whose girlfriend and then locker room fights and all of that good stuff. But uh, by and large, it, w- it was a fairly, um, let's say, adventurous school dis- district to be a part of. We told the story of Chris absolutely dumping uh, Burger King uh, play pit balls <laughs> down the hallway just for the hell of it. Uh, that type of stuff happened all the time. So you can imagine if that happened during the school year, what the hell happened in summer school. So unbeknownst to me, as, as a young freshman or, or not, actually, I was probably going into sophomore year, something around that time frame. Um, you know, I had summer school. I, I was a little bit bad or a little back on, on I think, some uh, our, our, our math classes. And so I walk into now, remember, this is right around 1992 ish. And I just walk into a classroom where people literally hanging on the rack. Paper balls, paper airplanes, all of it being tossed. And I was a shy kid. I was shy. I looked around. I said, Jesus, what the hell is happening in here? So you got kids dancing on top of their desks. This was the hottest song. Absolute mayhem happening in, in this summer school class. Now, mind you, summer school was basically babysitting for these teachers ready to, uh, you know, collect just income while the school year is is sort of over. And and so actually, we're going to let this we're going to let this play a little bit. Let's just let this play. So we had this teacher basically babysitting a bunch of maniacs. Right. And I was a shy kid. I wasn't a bad kid. I just walked into this madness, just ducking uh, paper balls and, and airplanes and you remember pencil fighting pencil fighting everywhere everyone each row just pencil fighting so of course with my uh, my anxiety and shyness I, I find the seat in the back of the room because I just do not want to be di- you know discovered looked at or anything and for whatever reason you know as, as class goes on and when I say I say class very loosely as babysitting went on there was just, just rows and rows of people handing back a piece of paper, forwarding it, laughing, passing it back, scribbling on a piece of paper, passing it back. Now, it finally gets to me. Now, I'm going to kind of close the circle here. I mean, we're going we're gonna to talk about the cat here. But so I get this piece of paper, and lo and behold, it's this cartoon character of a cat doing absolutely atrocious things. <laughs> Who drew this cat? 
doing something to another cat, maybe a rabbit. And then where did this knife come from? And why was the cat shooting something with blood and guts? And people were just hysterically laughing about this cat being drawn and passed around. And you were adding to this story. And then finally, it goes around the whole classroom. <clears throat> and then it, com it comes back to Rob. Now, now, Rob wasn't necessarily a bad kid from what I remember. I mean, I don't think anybody by any stretch of the imagination would call him a bad kid. But this was his moment. He was making a name for himself in summer school <laughs> by drawing, which now I'll have to ask him next time, next time he's in studio if this was Fritz the Cat. Because I just, I just thought it was like, you know, this really strange, demented cartoon character. And I'm like, wow, this is going to be a really fun summer in school because we had one of the young, impressionable teachers. He went by the name of Safeli. Uh, so anyone from, from back home that remembers the name Safeli, maybe, you know, the second year of him teaching in, in the district, and um, he could care less. I think he was a soccer coach or whatever. But, I mean, if you're 21, 22 years old in summer school, you know, you're just watching the clock. And as long as no one's eye gets poked out from pencil fighting and everyone's doing their, quote, dittos. Remember dittos? The Xeroxed copies of math sheets and whatever uh, handouts that they were distributing. That's all that really mattered. But what didn't matter is Rob, you know, drawing softcore porn and passing around the school, <laughs> the, the, the classroom. And so, I don't know. As a 15-year-old, that really spoke to me. I, I, I can't explain it. But why in the world would Fritz the Cat make its way to me? And how do I meet Rob because of that? <laughs> But that's really the, the first time that he and I really interacted. I'm like, so I, 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 outside of that, I really don't remember, you know, what the icebreaker was. You know, like, I can't imagine walking up to him and saying, hey, man, you're a really good drawer. <laughs> Do you ever think about a comic book? <laughs> no clue. No clue. But I remember then leaving the classroom after class ended and walking back, he probably already had a car at this point because as long as I can remember, Rob had a blue van and he, he drove us around. We talked about this and all the stories that we will tell about his blue van, but he literally just always had a car. Uh, that's how I remember Rob. He, he drove us everywhere and the guy, I mean, he, I probably still owe him gas money. You know what? We need to chip in. Forget, you know, the uh, GoFundMe for Chris's vacation. I think we need to pay back Rob gas money because the amount of miles that he burned picking all of us up, driving. He was the only one with his license and a car. Um, so, Rob, if you're listening to this eventually, <laughs> thank you, and we're gonna, we're gonna, I'm going to pay you back. This, now, remember, this is when gas was 99 cents. So, you know, I'm going to, you know, prorate this, by the way. $4 gas craziness. Anyway, so we all owe Rob a lot of gas, and, uh, you know, I, I will say of any of it, Rob was the most dependable, or is the most dependable, reliable, always there. You needed a help, you needed a ride, you needed something. Rob was the go-to guy, and to this day, uh, he hasn't changed, and um, it's a remarkable characteristic, and, um, you know, we all appreciate that uh, from our friendship with from him, and uh, but that hasn't changed, and, and so poor Rob got stuck with us, um, you know, carting us around. And, you know, we can thank, we can thank Fritz the Cat for this all starting to form. Now, remind you, Rob, Chris, Bill, and Sean, they all lived on the one side of town. Now, they may have had a relationship together, but I was a complete outsider. I lived with the old people. So it was a divided room. So we had Chris, or excuse me, uh, intern Dan and romantic Mike and myself all living in the old people section of the town. And then, and then Chris, Sean, Rob, and Bill, they kept it real. They were, they were in the city, quote, the rough, the rough streets of Pine Lake Park is, is the neighborhood. It's a very much of a grid system, you know, street system with a bunch of one-story ranches. It was, it, was, it was the hood. It was the hood. And I lived out in the country. And so we didn't have a relationship together. So although they were, you know, as Chris mentioned, stealing basketball hoops and mowing lawns and playing in the sewage water, <laughs> you know, Mike, Dan, and I, we were just kind of running around pulling ticks off each other. Um, but we'll get, we'll get to them. We'll get to them. Because uh, so... 
I, I, I do mention, although I may have known uh, Mike a little bit longer, I think the whole formation of the garage really starts with Rob, obviously, by this uh, eponymous named uh, podcast. So the next person I meet from the group, and we're going to stay within that same genre and time frame, is our wonderful friend Chris. Yes, his positive attitude and his optimism <laughs> and his absolute love and empathy of everyone and the greater population of the world was exactly the same way in high school. If, if not worse, he didn't like anything. Chris, Chris hated everything, everything. He liked music. He liked his, you know, his small friends. But remember, he moved from, uh, you know, a part of town into this into the high school um, midway through. Uh, I think he may have been a, a, a junior, maybe a sophomore sophomore when he moved in. Now, this may not be accurate, but I'm telling you what I remember. Okay, so we're gonna we're just gonna keep that as truth. So. This was now, you know, we, we, Rob and I survived summer school together, and we have this sort of appreciation for his sick humor and his cartoon skills. And so now we're back in school, and, you know, this was a time frame where, does anyone remember, you know, the gap? Remember the gap in the 90s? Where, yes, you would wear shorts, you'd wear khaki shorts with a long sleeve button up and then maybe a, a sweater vest, but you'd wear it really baggy um, because that, w- that, w- that was cool. Hold on, I'm queuing up a song here that I feel like would really help the context of this, of this time. So this, this, this kind of genre of, of, of style was really brought to us by our friends, Boys to Men. Remember Boys to Men in the video? They'd wear a tie, plaid shirt, shorts. Oh, yeah, the braided belt. Oh, the braided belt. Talking about Chess King at the mall. How ironic is it that we're back in Philly here, huh? Uh, we, we, we need to enjoy this. East Coast friend. So this was the style, at least for me. And, you know, I can thank my older sister because, you know, my, my older sister in high school was the popular girl. She had a reputation to protect. Now, her and I were a great apart. I was younger. And so she really needed to sort of protect me and take, take me under her wing. And so, you know, the year was school shopping, we went to the Gap. That was all the rage in the early 90s, right? And so I got the flyest braided belt. Yes, corduroy shorts. Big like remember that cartoon Doug? He had like a green sweater vest. I wore that shit. I wore it with a with a bright yellow plaid button up shirt and shoes called New Buck Leather. Now go ahead, you can Google it. Google it because I mean, un- unless you were in you know a Motown Philly boys to men uh, prep preppy, you may not know what New Buck Leather shoes are. So what New Buck Leather shoes are is you know, they were a style of shoe that had, they were like brown suede, but the soles uh, were this reddish orange that looked like uh, like an eraser top to a pencil. <laughs> and that was, that just completed the ensemble. You know what I mean? Like when Motown Philly, um, you know, talking about South Street, Boys to Men were the hottest band. And, you know, we were all rocking that, that urban preppy kind of look. Hysterical. Where is that? Like, where where did that go? Now it's dominated by like the Chads and Brads of the world going to like colleges in the SEC or something with their jewels and putting on uh, you know their 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 college hats. That actually was a style and a trend for a little while. Remember that wearing the preppy gear and then you'd wear your favorite college backwards. The game I think was the hat company. It wasn't any of this new era or uh, um, Mitchell and Ness. It was the game. You wear these white college hats. Anyway, so I'm leaving history class one day, and I'm just minding my own business. I was a shy kid. I'm going into the hallway, and then who do I see? I see this kid with purple hair, 
just staring at me with this grin. Now, if anyone knows the shit or the, the Chris shit eating grin, you understand what I'm saying. It's this, it's this grin that it's like he has a secret on you and you have no idea what the hell it could be, but then you just get nervous because it's like, wait, what did I do? You know, it's like when you, when, when, a, when you hear sirens from a police car, you immediately get defensive. And even though you're not speeding, you've done nothing wrong, you just, your palms are sweaty. That's Chris when he stares at you. Because <laughs> you just don't know what he's going to say, how he's going to say, or, or like why he's even saying it. And so I leave, I leave uh, history class, and Chris comes inches to my face. And now, I, I guess, you know, I was a little taller t- than him. So we're just like rubbing shoulders. And he just looks at me and he goes, you're copying my shoes. <laughs> I'm sorry, Chris. I, that's how you sounded. I know you sound like a creepy pedophile, like in that description, but I just have to say that that's how I remember it. So I didn't know how to respond to that. Like I didn't know how to respond to Rob's cat drawing. So I just smirked and, and nodded, and then he, and he just walked away. And that was my very first interaction of Chris, in which I, you know, hold on. I'm going to go ahead and just put a song. Like, for whatever reason, as awkward as, as it was, it was also so charming. It was so charming. And Chris, in his, his own odd, endearing way, complimented me. What a guy. What a guy. So, Chris, I'm, I'm just going to go ahead and just say it now that this song will always be tied to you because you were just quite the charming man when you complimented my new buck suede or new buck leather shoes. So thank you very much for that. Thank you very much for that, Chris. And again, same thing. I can't remember the next steps from either of those interactions, but I do remember, burned in memory. Those were the two interactions that I had both with, with Rob and Chris. Now, whatever happened in between, again, don't recall, but flash forward to the next environment with them, we're in Rob's car. Um, they asked me to go to a concert. And at this point, excuse me, at this point, I've never been to a, a, um, a concert in my life outside of any, <laughs> any church con- con- concerts. You know, you go to youth group and then you, you get someone that's like an Amy Grant cover band and hallelujah, you're at it. Best night of your life. Praise Jesus. <laughs> now, that, that was my only live music experience until I meet Rob and Chris. And, uh, you know, this is the part, this is, this is the kind of birthright into the rite of passage of your high school experience where you're now forming friends. And so this was the first invite that I had received to do something out of my traditional playing sports in the neighborhood, you know, doing something that felt safe and, and comfortable. This was like, hey, mom, my friend with his driver's license is going to take us to go see. I, I, I don't, I, you know what, honestly, I couldn't have told her that, you know, that we were going to see a concert in a major city because she would never let me go. I was a bit of a sheltered boy. So whatever the, the story I come up with, Rob and Chris picked me up in, um, in Rob's blue van. And I had never heard of the band that we were going to see, but they just kind of whisked me into his blue van. And then the next thing you know, again, it, it all makes sense now because here we are. We make it to the Trocadero in Philadelphia to a dead Milkman concert. You may remember them from the late 80s, Punk Rock Girl. One Saturday I took a walk to Zipper Head. I met a girl there and she almost knocked me dead. Punk Rock Girl, please look at me. So here I am, this little country bumpkin 
from the outskirts of the, the rough and tumble Manchester Township, hauling ass down Route 70 in Rob's van, listening to music that I had never heard of, but just really enjoying the humor and the laughter of, of, of everyone that, that was in this van. And I go to my first non-Christian music <laughs> concert, and I walk in, and it's mosh pits, it's mohawks, it's women, girls walking around in their bras as their outfit because it was hot, it was sweaty, and I was like, this is amazing. I don't know or care about the music, but awesome. She took me to her parents for a Sunday meal. No reason to beat anyone up over this song, but people were just uh, just hammering each other, spinning around, flailing, just running into Punk Rock Girl as this song of ch- childish love. And there was Chris and Rob just enjoying themselves, and I just was in absolute wonderment, shock, and awe that... I was sort of pulled out of my, my environment into this one and best day of my life. And who would have thought? Who would have thought? <laughs> 30 years later, we're back here in Philadelphia reminiscing and, and still close because Chris's creepy yet charming uh, mockery of my shoes, Rob's, Rob's drawings of his porno cat, and here we are. So as I mentioned, you know, I, I, we grew up on the other side of town. And when I say we, it's Romantic Mike and Intern Dan. And so I'll, I'll give you a brief little introduction on, on how I met them. Now, Romantic Mike, you know, he's always, a, you know, we always had this sibling kind of thing. And I, and I feel like, you know, he was, a, although we're close in age, just less, you know, probably a year apart, if that, months but we always had this older brother, younger brother, me being the older brother, him being the younger brother. And I, you know, thought, thinking about this, I think it's because of how we met. And that was Little League. And Mike's dad was, was the Joe Torrey of Little League managers. He was the best Little League manager. Now, he couldn't coach high school. He couldn't coach Babe Ruth League. He couldn't coach. But Little League... Rings, baby, rings. He was, he was, he just, he just knew how to win with eleven and twelve year olds. And you know, Mike's father, if if anyone knows him, is the most stoic, unemotional, just even keeled guy. Where it's just frightening. I mean, you take a bullet to his his midsection and not flinch. He just had that Charles Bronson kind of look to him. And so I, I finally convinced my my mom to sign me up to Little League. And, you know, at 12, now I was, that talk about a late bloomer. I mean, Little League, I mean, most kids are starting 7, 8, 9, 10, 11 years old. I didn't, I didn't get going until 12. Now, by the way, you know, there is an argument. I, I did go on to play in college. I was pretty good. So I will pat myself on the back there for being a late bloomer and persevering. I hope that breaks any, any statistics to uh, any of you parents that are, trying to vicariously live through your, your children's athletics, but just let them be. And if they're good, they're good. If not, you know, too bad. So anyway, my mom brings me to the Little League field. Very first thing she says to Mike's dad, who is the coach. Now, by the way, we, we had to do this draft. So there was a baseball draft in, in the uh, late winter, early spring. So like February, or excuse me, um, early March, maybe late February, they had tryouts. And so we would go to the, the middle school gym and all the coaches would go and, you know, you would have to try out for the team if, if you weren't already on one. And so I did that. And, you know, in the town, because we were so spread out, no matter what they say, I mean, at the end of the day, they chose you where they lived in the town because it was easier to coach. So we, we had our Pine Lake Park punks. <laughs> I, I joke, but, you know, the Pine Lake Park crew in that neighborhood, and then, you know, there was another district called Holly Oaks, and then, you know, the Whiting crew. But basically, you were chosen where you lived, and so it was easier for, for coaches and everyone to get their uh, and parents to get to the practices and what have you. And so I go to the tryout. I guess I do okay. 
and 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 they really made this a thing, which was kind of neat. Like they called your house, and you know it was like this big, you know, announcement. Like, hey, you know, you were chosen first in the draft. Congratulations! <laughs> and so, as a as a twelve year old that had never played little league, it was a pretty cool experience. But Mike's Mike's dad picked me, and again, he said I was the best one out there. But it was really because I lived, you know, the next neighborhood over. <laughs> We're not going to, but thank you for that vote of confidence, Mr. Pash. I really appreciate it. So, so romantic Mike and his brother were obviously on the team. So my mom drives me to the very first practice of little league. And so she's walking me and she knows no better. I mean, she means well, but she walks me to, um, Mike's dad and goes, my son's lefty. Is that okay? (laughs) Like I was some cripple. Some of the best baseball players that were lefty and are lefty. Babe Ruth, Ken Griffey Jr., Will Clark. I need can go on and on. Lefties. But she didn't know any better. And Mr. Pash in his, his, his very Charles Bronson way said, he's probably chewing on a toothpick. I'm lefty. <laughs> and that was it. That just was immediately, immediate icebreaker. And I think he felt bad for me because my mom, you know, sort of, positioned me to be this cripple boy that didn't know how to do things like other righty kids could do. <laughs> Just, I'm lefty. Talk about some old Catholic, like, torment there. I mean, didn't they do that in the, you know, like, if you were lefty, that was like the devil's hand, and they would try to force you into being a righty? Yes, my mom carried that. But now I'm a proud lefty. That's how I identify my pronoun as a lefty. Thank you very much. Intern Dan, hello. So, so that was my first introduction to uh, Romantic Mike's father. And so, of course, Romantic Mike was on the team. I was on the team. Now, the ironic thing about being lefty here is that there was no other position on the field that wasn't taken except being a catcher. Now, if you know anything about being baseball, there's no such thing as a left-handed catcher. It just doesn't make sense. It looks funny. You try to throw someone out. You, you hit him in the head because you're you know, throwing with the opposite hand. There's more righty batters than lefties. So if you're trying to throw someone out, you're just plunking someone in the back of the head. But Mr. Pash gave me the look. And I became a freak. I was like a weird unicorn. I was the white tiger, the lefty catcher. I was a little husky as a kid, you know? So I was perfect. I was a little fat kid that was just catcher. I didn't need to be fast. Just caught the ball and I felt like, yeah, you know, I'm I'm playing a sport. (laughs) It's not with my brothers, even though I'm a lefty, like one of those weird fellas. So they gave me the look there. And Romantic Mike, he played... He played second base, shortstop. But I can tell you, and, and you know, it's so poetic, perfect and poetic justice that he has grown into the moniker of Romantic Mike because the amount of times he would cry at practice during games for any reason at all because he didn't do well, something bad happened, he argued with the ump. Romantic Mike cried so many times playing Little League, it wasn't even funny. I I honestly thought that there was something wrong with him. Why does he cry so much? You made an error, walk it off. It's no big deal. He wouldn't get, like, if he got hit by a pitch, that's startling. But Mike would cry for everything. (laughs) I'm sorry, Mike. I love you, but stop crying. Just stop it. I know that you're sensitive now, but your romance had overtaken your emotions even at a very young age. So, but again, because I had this, you know, this fatherly figure with his dad being our little league coach, the gimpy lefty that converted to be a catcher and, and his younger, his son, my younger surrogate brother, that cried all the time, I, I just felt that I needed to sort of take care of uh, Romantic Mike. And, and so that really, that was the start of our friendship. Um, you know, one, just consoling him, and, and he was a good at. I will say, I'm, I'm riding him a little bit, but he was a very good athlete. Um, he, he, was over, he was able to overcome his emotional issues, not cry over everything, but he was a very passionate ball player, which uh, led to his success. Also played in college. All right, Romantic Mike, is that better? You're going to start sending us hate emails. So then, so, now, so then that brings us to Intern Dan. Now, Intern Dan, he, his family had moved into this section of our town 
um, I believe from, from North Jersey, which most people did because this was really undeveloped land that you could buy. If you bought a house in our uh, neighborhood, you got a full acre of land, which is unheard of. There's not, I mean, it's insane. I mean, half of my parents' yard still is woods compared to just open space. So uh, as, as most North Jersey families would come and migrate down to just find their plot of land, um, I'd imagine interns Dan's family, you know, just found their, their gold with their acre of land. And, and also, much like uh, Chris's family, a lot of kids, these two, these two guys, their families spitting out babies like orphanages. Crazy. But, you know, in turn, Dan had the space for it. It was just woods, open land, have all the kids you want. A little posse. But the one thing I remember about intern Dan, he loved fire. Just loved, just, hey, let me just light that stick. Just going to light the stick. Well, why are you going to light the stick? I don't know, see it burn. He wouldn't do anything bad with it. You just see it smoke and then put it out, and all right, okay. Well, he wasn't an arson by any means. He just, you know, there was a lot of woods around us. As, as kids, you know, you leave the rough cities of North Jersey, you come down, of course you're going to just light a pine tree up. So anyway, one day we were, we were riding bikes or whatever we were doing, but we were on the other side of this senior citizen community that, that we lived in, and it was the downtown. And when I say downtown, there was like a grocery store and a pharmacy. <clears throat> so, you know, we were just goofing around. We had another, you know, person with us just putzing around the parking lot, doing wheelies. Remember like, skid marks on, on your bike, you'd go really fast and then you just slam on the brake and then you see how long you could make a tire skid. Shit like that. Just harmless kid stuff. So we go to the pharmacy just because we're, we're kind of doing laps and we, we spin around and lo and behold, there's just this, this shopping cart full of newspaper. And it's like, well, well, that's weird. Why is there a shopping cart full of newspaper? So what would three... 12 to 13-year-old kids do with a shopping cart full of newspaper? Light it on fire. Of course we would. Why? I mean, of course. It's just asking for it. There's a shopping cart full of newspaper. You're not going to push it around, pick up groceries. You just light it on fire. So we're going to blame the third party here. I think his name was, what was his name? Call him, we'll call him Scott. His name was Scott. Scott you know, he was kind of a goofball. He was, you know, he turned out to be a smarter kid. I, th I think he's, he, he, he's a teacher now, but he was just a goofball growing up. And, you know, I, I think he, he, you know, really wanted to impress people, but he, he lights this card on fire. Despite Dan, intern Dan being the one that was the original Beavis. <laughs> Scott lights this thing on fire and then we run away. Because now there's a shopping cart full of burning newspaper. And so we run away. And again, mind you, it, it wasn't in harm's way. Nothing happened catastrophic. Nothing was burned. No squirrels were killed. There's still pine trees where this, this parking lot was. Everything was fine. But two days later, I'm at home and a police car comes to my house. And it's the neighborhood cop, right? You know, I feel like every neighborhood growing up had their cop. Every, every different neighborhood had like the one guy on, on beat. And so we had one cop and he was an older guy and he was just kind of like a dopey, you know, just a community cop guy, right? And so he comes to my, you know, he comes to my house and thank God my parents were not home. They weren't home. And I, it was a summer day, police car comes, he starts walking up the yard, knocks on the door. I'm the only one at the house. I answer it. And he's like, so can you tell me where you were, you know, yesterday at two o'clock or whatever day it was? And I go, um, yeah, I was hanging out with friends. Oh, is one of your friends intern Dan? <laughs> well, he is a friend. Well, you can, can you confirm or deny your uh, whereabouts with intern Dan and your buddy Scott? And I'm like, uh, you know, we were riding bikes. Well, such and such, they rolled on me is what happened. They couldn't keep a story straight and they rolled on me and there was nothing I could say and I was caught just by association <laughs> with a lit up shopping cart. Just caught. 
And without my parents' awareness, to this day, no clue that this happened. No official police record. Well, I take that back. No sort of arresting or charges that, you know, we had to go downtown and fill out paperwork. The police officer said, You're, you can't leave your house for 30 days. And I'm like, what? He goes, yeah, I understand you have a school dance coming. You can't go. I'm like, oh. He goes, and if you go, we're going to have a real problem. And then you're going to like, you know, we're going to bring this to, to court or whatever. And so we had this secret that, you know, I was a part of a group, one knucklehead that lit up a shopping cart with newspaper on fire. And I, and, you know, I just didn't leave the house for like the month of September or August. No, I must have been in school because we had this school dance, and he used that against me. He's like, you can't go to that. I will be chaperoning that dance, and you can't go. And if you go, you're being arrested. So uh, 13 years old, that happens. Flash forward to college. Now, in college, they had this program. You know, like most, once you kind of hit junior, senior year, you're just riding at home, and you're looking for any levels of credits. You know, they, they do a lot of silly stuff just to kind of give your sort of liberal arts education, a, a well-rounded uh, experience. And so <laughs> in college, they had this program that you could be a campus escort. <laughs> well, not that escort, but a campus escort that you would chaperone or walk girls back to their dorm or anyone, right? So I, I went to Stockton University. It was a big wooded area, and you'd have to go through um, this trail that went in between a lake. It was poorly lit, you know, it was uh, over this bridge and through the woods. Like it was, it was, it was kind of ridiculous, right? I mean, for the standards of what happens in college now and even back then, it, I mean, it was, it was pretty dangerous. So they implemented this program where for, you know, two college credits, you would work from, I don't know, from 6 p.m. to 10 p.m. at night You'd stand behind a booth on campus, and anyone that walks up to the booth says, hey, can you walk me to my dorm? You would go. So in order to do that, you had to go through the campus police um, background check. And so, like most colleges, you know, they had their own PD right on the campus. And so I filled out the application. They said, you know, I had to take fingerprints. I had to, you know, I did nothing wrong. I, it was like, great, what an, what an easy way and um, rewarding way to earn college credits. And so, you know, the, I don't know, call it a week, week process. The, the, the police department comes to my dorm room and says, okay, do you mind explaining us about an incident behind a Rite Aid about eight years ago? And I'm like, I legit no clue. No clue what he was talking about. And I'm like, behind, oh, the shopping cart full of newspaper. Is that what you mean? <laughs> he goes, we, ha- we called the police. This was on your file. And so we called the police department. They had no record of it, but they had the, quote, arresting or the documenting police officer. So we called his house, and we just want to let you know that he laughed when he told us what happened. Like, he forgot about you guys even doing it. So we're not going to, like, count this as a, a negative mark on your record, but it came up, and you should be aware of it. <laughs> so that stupid little incident, intern Dan, almost cost me a few college credits. My God. So nonetheless, I was able to get my college credits, and I was a dutiful campus escort uh, for a semester. So... That's how I met intern Dan. So who's left? Who do we got? Dollar Bill and Sean Ale. Sean and Bill. Bill and Sean. It was always Bill and Sean. They, they, it, was, it was never like Sean and it was never Bill. It was always Bill and Sean because in those days, they were just like a package deal. They were like a tag team wrestling group. They, were, they just did, they, they weren't apart. And now, now they were older. And because I think, you know, truth be told, they're like 65 years old, the two of them. And, and I don't know. But so they, I don't even know if they were probably in college just hanging out in high school. <laughs> That's what the, they were those guys, right? Just smoking cigarettes against the lockers, just kissing all the girls and just, you know, as a younger, impressionable, um, uh, what do they call them? Uh, classmen, a younger classmen. I, I'm butchering the word, but, um, anyway, so a freshman or sophomore, you're looking, you're looking up the, uh, looking up at the seniors and junior, and now you got these kids in college. I'm kidding. They were, they weren't in college, but they, they were older, 
but they were a package deal. And I had, I had no awareness of them or who they were. You know, my relationship with Rob and Chris was completely independent of what Bill and Sean had with Rob and Chris together as, as neighborhood, as, as neighbors. But as I mentioned, my sister, her sole responsibility or, or so it seemed was to really take me, take me under her wing. And, and, uh, you know, as the, um, sorry, just pulling up a, another song that I can narrate here. And now that's going to hopefully, (laughs) um, add to this story. So my, my sister's whole purpose was to really, um, take, take me under her wing. And as the popular girl, she, she dressed me, she introduced me to her friends and with that, you know, she would take me to these parties. Now, I was a big hotshot because, hey, I went to a Dead Milkman concert and, you know, with somebody with a license, and we saw girls walking around in their bras. And so, of course, I can go to an older class, sta- uh, class member's uh, party. Now, again, this was somewhere between 92, I think it was like summer 92, 93, right around there. But pure as day... I remember going uh, going into this party with a blasting room of this song, the most impressionable song for my youth. Walking into this cloud-filled room of wall-to-wall people in this house party. Now I know Bill and Sean are the two knuckleheads dancing like Ad Rock and MCA to this song. Let's give it some time. Bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, I am just wandering this house, not knowing where I am, what I'm doing there, where my sister was, but here I am. And now... I'm in this house. This song is just on level 100 on the speakers. Smoke just filling the the house. People coming in and out of every room. Out of the basement, out of closets. You remember parties in high school? Like people just hang out in the closet, whatever, you know, like making out and they would just fall out. You know, just, (laughs) just every, like someone was in the parents' room. Somebody was in the attic, the basement. Someone's out in, in the garage and then there's the shed. It's like the sub party or the after party was in the shed. So I'm walking down this long hallway because every house was a ranch. Walking down this long hallway and there's this dude. Now there were these two brothers, um, biological brothers. Uh, One was named, I think his name was Sony and it was short for something. And his other brother, his brother was Matalisto, but they, they looked the same. They were like twins. And, uh, you know, they were just walking around this party with big glass bowls, crystal bowls. And in the crystal bowls, there were hundreds, hundreds, like a, like a candy trick or treat bowl, hundreds of dime bags full of marijuana. <laughs> and so I don't know if it was Sony or, or Natalisto, but he's like, go ahead, Kurt Cobain, take one. <laughs> now, why he called me Kurt Cobain? That summer... I had a cousin. His name is Gussie. God rest his soul, Gussie. Rest in peace. Now, Gussie, I was two months older than Gussie, but he was my spirit animal. He was the absolute antithesis of who I was. And he was just, you know, for a little context, he was somewhere between uh, Chris Farley and John Belushi in real life. Like, the, the kid was an animal, he, he was amazing. But he was the type of kid that no matter where he was, trouble would find him. And, and, and no matter, you know, like completely innocuous, he could be hanging out at a Wawa and the bank robber would come out with like all the cash registers money and the cops would just arrest him because, you know, he, he had a roll of quarters on him. <laughs> like he, he was that kid. But every now and again, because we were close in age and we were first cousins, my mom would drop me off at his house, assuming that her brother and his wife were good parents and were going to manage these two teenage boys and let them sort of play catch, 
play basketball or skateboard or do shit like that. No, hanging out with Gussie, any sort of bad thing to happen or like exploratory, you know, teenage thing to discover happened with Gussie because it was, it was a lawless environment. <laughs> so going to Gus's house was just complete lawless and I could do no wrong to his mother. His mother absolutely loved me, my aunt. And because she just assumed that I was the good kid. And so if, if I was hanging out with Gussie, Gussie would be, would be good. But what was really happening was because I was hanging out with Gussie, I would be bad. And he was more of a bad influence on me than, than vice versa. So long story, we go to the beach because, you know, Gussie was the type of kid that wherever the wind would blow would dictate his style. So one day you'd go to his house and, you know, he would be a surfer. He had bleach blonde hair and, you know, he had rip curl posters all over and surfboards. Literally two weeks later, you'd go to his house and he was a goth white face paint, listening to corn, just within two weeks time frame, And over the t- calendar month, he would go through two different versions of himself for a full year. You just didn't know who he was going to get. Now this happened to be over the summer. So I caught surfer Gus, surfer Gussie. So we go to the beach and, you know, because Gus really needed to immerse himself in whatever, you know, counterculture that he wanted to get involved with. So he goes, you know, and I had long hair at that time. You know, it was just, again, it was maybe that grunge period, but it was, it was longer. And, you know, in the early 90s, everyone had that stupid part down the middle and your hair looked like the McDonald arches. It just parted down the middle and that, you know, that was the popular haircut. Well, he goes, I think we should put peroxide in your hair and we should bleach it and you'll look like a total surfer. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> and we have, to, we, you have to stay in the sun all day. So he bleaches my hair just to the point where it's almost orange and it's longer. And I'm on the beach all day where, you know, the saltwater hair and long day. I leave the house and then my sister invites me to this party. I go in, I meet Sean and Bill because I think they're the beastie boys. And then some guy hands me a bowl, a crystal bowl full of dime bags, which I didn't know what to do or didn't know what it was. That's how naive I was. But the fact that he called me Kurt Cobain, I thought was absolutely hysterical. <laughs> and I had, I had some clout. So that was like my, my proud coming to moment um, of, of hanging with the, the older classmen uh, and, and sort of just being in the in crowd that partied. And, uh, and that's really how I met everyone. And then from there, here we are, 20 years later. 20 years later, 30 years I don't know. I hope that was entertaining. I didn't realize that was fi- we're at 57 minutes. I told myself I, I would be happy to get to 15 minutes. I didn't know what the hell we were going to talk about. So that, that's, our, that's our quick background from my perspective only. Now, I, again, I can't wait for the guys to hear this and uh, maybe add, add to these stories. I, intern Dan, I, I fully prepare <laughs> for a lecture. Um, and romantic Mike, I love you. I know the tears have gone and, and, and you're fine. But I wanted to get this show in. I know it's been a couple of weeks um, on hiatus just because we are adults with real professions. <laughs> we also play that. Um, and so life pulled us away. And um, I'm actually traveling for work this week, going to Los Angeles. Um, so I'm going to be away all week, and, and we're just not sure if we're going to uh, do another show. Oh, and, and we're awful liars because, again, you know, we do – anyone who's seen our, our post on Instagram or Twitter, Rob's Garage Podcast and Rob's Garage Pod on, on Twitter, we promised that we were going to live stream. Well, we lied to you because it's just me, and who the hell wants to look at me for an hour just talking about these stories? I'm not doing anything special. So we're going to save the live stream until, you know, we get the full Voltron show back or at least some facsimile of the full show. More than me, I can't wait for Rob to come back from Seattle with all of it. There's nothing left. Seattle is sold out, completely sold out. So I guess I, guess I get to pick the, the exit song today. And, uh, you know, I figured, let's see here. You know, I wish there was, I, so if I actually prepared 
and I think this is like proof positive that I, I we do zero preparation here. Um, I would have all of these songs queued up, but you know, I, we have to stammer through me searching um, the songs that I want to play here. Uh, so I'm going to LA, and uh, one of the things that uh, Romantic Mike really loves to bring up whenever he has the opportunity is, uh, you know, the the time that I I move after 9/11 that I moved to, to California in my manifest destiny after the terrorist attacks, you know, as a young 24-year-old just trying to, you know, figure all things out. I, I figured, you know, I sur- survived that, that experience in New York, and I'm, and I'm going out west. Well, I failed miserably in doing that, right? And so I move out there. I had no plan. I had a little bit of money saved up. And I go out there on a hope and a prayer. And, you know, I'm not an actor. I'm not a model. I had no idea how, uh, how significant the entertainment industry is in a city like Los Angeles where there is no sort of tangential professions outside of the entertainment business. You know, in early 2000, I mean, it was, it was 100% felt like, you know, outside of maybe being a lawyer or a doctor, <clears throat> every every symbiotic business was tied to the entertainment industry. And I didn't necessarily have a a care or or interest in that. So it was miserable in trying to find a professional job. Now on paper, I looked great. You know, I had great work experience and I could not get a waitering job. And it was because I wasn't an actor (laughs) and countless restaurants and bars told me I, they didn't want to hire me because I would get a real job and move on where they like to hire actors because they tend to stick around. (laughs) There's your big Hollywood secret right there. Um, And so uh, I struggled and I struggled um, for, for a full year. And it got to the point where I moved out to, um, to California. I had a, a car. I had a U-Haul full of stuff, my apartment, I had a motorcycle, Knife and I, we drove everything out to California. I literally came back with a suitcase. And the story Mike loves to hear is when I exposed myself and my struggles that I had to sell my iron on eBay and I accepted a $5 check. (laughs) Now, I don't know. I mean, we all claim to hit some lows in our lives, but if you've ever had to sell an iron and accept a check, it doesn't get much worse than that, my friends. Not at all. So there you go, Romantic Mike. I, I called out your, your crying, but I, I will expose myself um, in, me, in me selling my iron and accepting a check, you know, as payment. So, but one of the things that I remember with living out there, um, despite the struggle, and it's part of the reason why I still love it out there, I, I, I feel like I have this kinship to, to Los Angeles, is there's just this special, maybe it's fleeting because it's temporary and you're, not, you're never really there for an extended amount of time, but just the, the, the mix of culture of, of, of different classes, you know, wealth disparity like no other city in the world, maybe New York, but it's more hidden. You could be on the subway with you know, Michael Bloomberg and not know it next to three home. But in, in Los Angeles, the disparity is so wide and far and noticeable. But there's, you know, the sunsets are so beautiful. And I just distinctly remember during this time, just driving down like the 405. And now it's a 10 lane super highway. You're going 80, 90 miles an hour and with thousands and thousands of cars doing the same thing. And you just get lost in this beautiful sunset and these mountain ranges and then you start thinking about your friends and your family and it's like, oh, I'm dejected and, you know, I've, what, what has come of my life at 25 years old or whatever. And you're just, you just kind of get lost in these, um, these, these thought cycles. But, um, but whenever I go there, it, it just kind of, you know, obviously we're, you know, well beyond that and, and I've certainly turned it around for myself, but there's always that ounce of, of memory lane. And so I came across this song called um, by Granddaddy is the band and uh, Granddaddy at geez I think for they were probably one of the the the, the best early 2000 
indie bands that just kind of faded. I'm not sure what happened to them. But they have this song called El Camino's in the West. And again, riding down the 405 in Los Angeles, you just see Ferrari after Ferrari and Teslas and Lamborghinis and all these fancy cars. But then we talked about the Datsuns last show with the brown, orange color. And you, you get a whole load of those type of cars. And they're just li- you know side by side. And, it, and it's just like no other place. It's just so unique. And so I, I came across this song <clears throat> um, just the other day. And I'm so happy because I think it's going to be a perfect... Uh, uh, exit song. And uh, so with that, I'm just going to leave you with El Camino's in the West by Granddaddy. And I, and I hope you enjoyed this little short concept show. We'll talk to you soon. Episode 26 on the horizon with the full cast. See you guys. So far.